Hello and welcome to the Paratex podcast. I'm Dr Dennis Duncan of the Centre for the Study of the Book at the Bodleian Library in Oxford. And in this series I'll be talking to people who are working at the forefront of research on paratexts. That is, the parts of a book that are not the main text. Things like indexes, footnotes or errata lists and so on. Today I'm in the glorious setting of the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington DC. Uh, which is an amazing collection in an amazing library. We're in a conference room downstairs, which is exactly like a conference room would have looked like in in the late 16th century. (laughs) And I'm with uh, Dr Megan Brown, who's a long-time research fellow at at the library here. Uh, Dr Brown has done a considerable amount of work on on a rather overlooked paratext, the the dedicatory epistle, or the the publishers to the reader letter. Uh, What what should we call them? The printer to the reader epistle is what I've called it in my research. Um, And typically it's what it's called, or more generally, to the reader epistles. To the reader epistles, Um, right. So rather than a dedicatory epistle where you have a dedication to a specific named patron, Mm. the to the reader epistle more generally addresses the general reader, sometimes with a, a caveat to the kind reader, to the gentle reader, to the good Christian reader, or what have you. Right, okay. And when we were talking about this earlier, you, you said we can distinguish this well because they're often not author letters, but they are um, composed by the printer or the publisher. There are variations. Um, in the early period that I focus on, the majority of them are from the printer to the reader. But there's quite a few that are from the author to the reader as well, or from the editor to the reader. And later on, you also get translator to the reader. Um, typically, those are just titled to the reader. And what is the period that we, we're talking about? So I'm interested in how these uh, paratexts develop. And I started at the beginning with William Caxton, who doesn't have a separate section that he titles to the reader, but he addresses the reader directly in epilogues and prologues to the various books of the first book that was ever printed in English. Now, I don't do French well, so I'm going to butcher the title here. Um, but it's the Vaucouillet of the History of Troy. It's a collection of stories about Troy. Um, all three falls of Troy. We typically only think about the final fall of Troy, which was done um, at the hands of the Greeks. But Troy actually fell two times before that. And in translating this story from French, Caxon actually uses these spaces to explain not only why he chose to do the translation, so in fact he is acting as a translator here, but also why he chose to print it. Um, And he says to the reader, And for as much as in the writing of the same, my pen is worn, my hand wary, and not steadfast, mine eye dimmed with overmuch looking on the white paper, and my courage not so prone and ready to labor as it hath been. And that age creepeth on me daily, and feebleth all the body. And he goes on in this vein for some time, Um, basically the trials and tribulations of long writing, which we are all very familiar with. Um, And also, because I have promised to diverse gentlemen and to my friends to address them as hastily as I might the said book, therefore I have practiced and learned at my great charge and dispense to ordain this book in print after the manner and form that ye may see here, and it is not written with pen and ink as other books hath been. Right, so we have in effect, a statement about why he chose the medium of print to produce this book. And we find out also that this is done at the behest of gentlemen. He frames the whole idea of why he brought the book to print for the reader. But is there a a parallel in in pre-print text? Is is this a kind of skewer morph of of something that existed before? Is this a a new paratext that comes in with print? 
I think it actually develops out of some of the statements that appear in colophons. Um, so if you're familiar with the medieval colophon, what you have there is a statement uh, typically by the scribe saying, um, I so-and-so have finished this book on the 12th day of October, 1256. Thank God I'm done. So, and again, the scribe is not necessarily the, the author of the text, so here it's like Very rarely, being... yeah. And so what you end up having is a, a movement of this after Caxton from spaces that are similar, somewhat analogous to colophons. I mean, he's writing in the epilogue this decision to print. He's using the, the space after the end of the main text to discuss why he has done this. Um, and he, very quickly, these kinds of writings start moving and becoming prefatory materials. And they start to take on the form of a letter. So the reader is addressed you know, to my dear reader. And occasionally you'll see a, a sign-off of farewell um, or your most humble servant, etc. Not as commonly as you do in dedicatory epistles, but you occasionally get the name of the person who's writing it. Sometimes they just sort of fudge over all that with to the printer to the reader, and you get to fill in for your own self who the printer might be. And what are the types of statement that they're making? So I've identified a number of different sort of motions that these texts take. Um, they can be everything from the printer explaining quirks of authorship. Um, for instance, why a text might be anonymous. The Fraternity of Vagabonds um, is a, a fantastic example of this, uh, STC 994. It declares that its anonymous author is a vagabond um, and is going to remain anonymous because otherwise he would be killed for informing upon other vagabonds. <laughs> um, it's also sometimes used to defend... Uh, error, or excuse error, excuse error is probably a better term for this, um, to excuse errors that might be found in the text. Um, the printer explains that the author was not available to proof the sheets, yes, okay. or um, was not coming forward um, with proofs in a timely fashion, which we can also sympathize with occasionally. Sometimes you get a little back and forth between the author and the printer about who is exactly responsible. <laughs> Um, and you sort of wonder if there's collusion there, because the, the printer has to print this, right? Where, where, where is that dialogue going on? So we, we might have an author, um, prefatory material as well, mm -hmm. and the, the printers. You can have both, run right after the other. Um, there's a really famous example in uh, Gascoigne's Hundred uh, Sundry Flowers that's sort of mocking this. The idea of error appears quite a lot in these. So you get these sort of excuses for error um, because the author uh, was not available to prove, sometimes because the author is unknown. Right. Um, as, as a kind of vaguer, future-oriented future thing rather than an errata list that, that is specific. Well, errata lists start off as part of these kinds of conversations, right. Gosh, okay. and they eventually break off. And I haven't got, quite got all the data I want on this yet, but what happens is um, discussions of error eventually break off and go to the end of the text, mm. probably in the hopes that the reader doesn't notice them, um, whereas other kinds of direct address from the printer stay in the prefatory materials. So in earlier versions, they're both combined, and in later versions, you get uh, a preface to the reader and then a, perhaps a separate document at the end uh, listing errors for, collect, right. for correction. Right. Yes, okay. Some of these times... Epistles are also used by the printer to address questions of authenticity. Um, 
There's a fantastic one where uh, Robert Cayley is a printer in the mid-Tudor period um, who prints Thomas Watson's Wholesome and Catholic Doctrine, a, a really important document about the sacraments. Um, this gets pirated almost immediately. Right. And in his second edition, uh, Cayley rips apart the piracy and the men responsible for it in a prefatory epistle to the reader, where he attempts to teach the reader how to identify the forgery. Wow. And how can we do that? He says, Certain men, printing it under my name, partly for negligent hast, partly for other corruption, which I fully know not, have falsified the same in a great number of places, whereby the sentences very many times are changed contrary to the author's mm. true mind and meaning, which their doings be not only prejudicial to me, that am privileged to print the said word alone, and also scandalous to the right reverend father, the author of the same, but also be hurtful and pernicious to readers, especially such as be not able by their learning to correct their own book, and discern what the printer should have done from what is by him corruptly done, for which their doings they have the king and queen most honorable counsel suffered and rebuke and condign punishment. Lovely. <laughs> I love the fact that then the, the, um, the, to the reader epistle varies from edition to edition. This wouldn't have belonged in the first edition because it hadn't been pirated yet. So mm -hmm. do we find that they change much? It's really fascinating to watch them go across editions because sometimes they stick around far longer than they ought to. Right. You end up having very edition-specific statements appear in the fourth edition, fifth edition, sixth edition, after they were originally contextually important. Yes, yes, okay. Um, there's a, a pamphlet that comes out during the Spanish Armada in which the printer says, I have stopped the presses and added this news, to paraphrase. And she did. She stopped the presses and she added news of the Spanish wrecks across the Irish coast. This epistle, however, gets reprinted at the front of the 1641 edition. Wow. <laughs> so the, the printer of the 1641 edition is not the same printer as the original one. It's 60 years later, roughly. And when he when it says, I have stopped the presses and added this news, that couldn't possibly be true. But it must have been reset then by a new printer. Who, it was. Who's seeing it as part of the document that they want to... Gosh. And what it does is it speaks to the timeliness of the original yes. news pamphlet. Yes. So even though it's no longer applicable to the document it's in, yes. it's still important to the context that it's uh, published with. Yes, okay, yeah. So you... Um, conducted a survey of, mm -hmm. of, of this type of letter. Could you tell us a little bit about the, the way that you researched it, this enormous um, survey that you did? So this was a test survey, mm. um, and it was done under the auspices of Florida State University's Undergraduate Research Opportunity Program, or UROP. Um, there apparently are a dearth of research opportunities for English majors, and I had actually quite a few applicants to work on this project. It was fascinating. I ended up with three research assistants. And so to get a sampling of the kinds of epistles that appear in early modern texts, um, I wanted something a little bit more comprehensive than what's currently available through the Early English Books Online Text Creation Partnership yes. encoded texts. Because they privilege first editions, it's actually problematic. They wouldn't have come up with that Cayley example sure, sure. because they're looking at the first edition. So what I did was I had my students uh, select a decade. Each of them picked a decade. One of them was 1550, one of them was 1580, and one of them was 1620. And they started at the beginning and using the year lists from the STC, 
checked every book published 1550, 1551, 1552, mm. and looked for whether there was an epistle. If there was an epistle, they recorded where it appeared in the book, um, what it was attempting to do for the book, uh, what the genre of the book that it was associated with right. was, and, if, and several other factors, whether it had a header, if it was signed, that kind of thing. Um, and we started surveying. They did a fantastic job. They had ne- Two of them had never read early modern texts before this. Um, they got exposed to quite a lot of early modern orthography. And they got to each individually research one of the texts that they came across as part of their own project. Mm. For me, they did a, quite a lot of classifying. Um, we ended up coming up with a controlled vocabulary to try and describe what these texts were doing. And it ranged from identifying the author and excusing faults, which we've already discussed, yes, yeah. um, to giving um, a reason for printing or advertising another work that you could buy from the same printer. Oh, lovely. Excellent. So the, the, these are often discussed as mercantile documents, as advertising yes, yes, documents, yeah. either puffing the book that they're in or telling you about other things you could buy in the same shop. Yeah, if, if you like, like Amazon's, if you like this, you might also... Yeah, if you like things by this author, mm. we also have. <laughs> um, and that's actually much more true towards the later end. Of, Is it? Yeah. Quite often they, they do serve as, as blurbs in some ways. Um, Caxons are known for having uh, discussions about how he was induced to print something by specific unnamed gentlemen. <laughs> Sort of but it's important that it's a gentleman, isn't it? It's oh. not a vagabond who wants me to print this. It's oh, a... no, no. And it's for the good of the country. Right. See. Um, so you end up with some quite interesting statements. The, the mercantile nature of this shows up in some of the most famous of these kinds of epistles. Um, the first folio Shakespeare has one written by the editors. Um, Condal and Hemings to the reader. So the, they're the two editors who bring the, the first folio mm. to press. Um, specifically say... Um, it is now public, and you will stand for your privileges, we know, to read and censure. Do so, but buy it first. That doth best commend a book, the stationer says. So this is something that you would have seen right at the front of the book, right as you open the book, and perhaps before you buy it. So if you're yes, leaving through yes, the book okay, in yeah. the shop, um, Henry and Con- Condal and Hemming are saying, um, wonderful, take us to task, tell us it's terrible, but first buy the book. <laughs> right, okay. So that's, a, in, in one way, that's, that's why it's important this thing moves to the front of the book because this becomes uh, something that you might be sort of browsing before you've bought it when you're looking at the unbound book in the shop. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we end up finding sort of discussions of how textual reception influences the production of texts quite a lot in these books. Um, William Ponsonby... Um, who prints Spencer's Complaints in 1591, uh, does so, he says, because of the popularity of the Fairy Queen, because the Fairy Queen did so well. Since my late setting forth of the Fairy Queen, finding that it hath found a favorable passage amongst you, I have since endeavored by all good means for the better increase and accomplishment of your delights to get into my hands such small poems of the same authors as I heard were dispersed abroad in sundry hands, and not easy to be come of by himself, of the which I have by good means gathered together these few parcels present, which I have caused to be imprinted. Good, okay. I can see the, the, yeah. the way that it's an 
it's an advertisement for the book in hand then here, isn't mm-hmm. it? You... And not incidentally, probably also advertising any copies of the yeah. Fairy Queen he has. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's okay, yeah. This book was so popular, I got you more by the same author. <laughs> what are the other things you talked about, the uh, making a classification of, of what um, this type of paratext attempted to do for the book? Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked a bit about explain anomalies, um, mm-hmm. puffing either this book or, or another. Yeah, so, so we called that one commending the text mm. in our classification. Um, we made advertising another work, um, either by the same printer or author, a separate category. Um, adding content, sometimes the these epistles included further news, as in the case of that Armada broadside, or they included um, additional poems, um, sometimes little attempts by uh, the printer for various... Uh, extrapolation on the topic, that particularly in religious texts. Okay, so That's kind of editorial intervention as well. A little bit of editorial intervention, a little bit of personal writing okay. by the producer of the text. Um, there's possibly a subcategory for that uh, of go little book poems, um, little envoys, where the book itself is addressed by the printer or the book itself addresses something. So you, a little bit of poetic um, disposal. These don't always happen in prose. Sometimes they are verse. So you get oh, some lovely, but, but addressing yeah. the book itself and yeah. go forth little book as a, as a material object go forth go forth little book and don't embarrass me is not an uncommon thing <laughs> <laughs> so adding content is one um, reason for printing translating or writing was a one set um, and by far some of the biggest um, ad- most items belong to this one yes. this and how do you distinguish that from from the puff then the reason for printing as opposed to, well, I printed this because you wanted so much or because a very important gentleman told me how much you wanted it? So, um, the, commending the text, we, I, we use that for anything. It was like, I hope you like my book. Um, I hope, you know, this is a fantastic book. You will surely enjoy it. That's a puff. Um, the reason for printing was often things like, um, I have decided to put this into print because it was already stolen in abroad and illegitimate. Um, that could be a reason so it, it, to avoid plagiarism. Um, I decided to put this into print because I was begged so hard by everyone around me, um, which it, it is a commending, that's a puff, um, but the primary reason is, is to describe the reason for printing. Right? Um, this idea that, of inducement by interested parties. Mm. The reasons for translating are often at the behest of a patron. Um, or to while away, to prevent idleness, that sometimes occurs, as a reason for um, writing or translating. Um, don't tend to get discussions of idleness as a discussion as a reason for printing. With Caxon's example, um, he has another version where he says that he decided to uh, have the Mort d'Arthur printed so, because he promised everyone that they could have it at once and then claims had done it in one day, which seems a rather <laughs> unlikely uh, schedule. Many of them, though, um, th- thinking about, maybe thinking about what the paratext does as a whole, are there any generalizations that we can make about um, th- th- the reasons for these? Well, they increasingly become sort of codified and standardized to the point where they, they start to lose a little bit of the specificity of the actual event of printing. Yes, I mean, okay. you still get... Um, epistles quite late that are tied to specific events. When is this? We're talking about mid-17th century? or. or... So, um, for example, in 1591, 
um, John Lee's um, one of John Lilly's plays is published by John Charlwood uh, for the Widow Broom because the playhouses have been closed. So it's clearly tied to a specific event. It's a closure yes. for play. Right. Um, and he says, since the plays and polls were dissolved, there are certain comedies which have come into my hands, and I believe that you should like them. Yeah. Um, but so it's tied to the specific event of the closure of the Playhouse of Paul's. This is not always true, and this would become increasingly sort of vague. Like, I decided to print this because I thought you would like it. So as these things become more and more uh, commodified and standardized, they also get that sort of hyperbolic quality that's just sort of ripe for satire. Right. And so you end up um, getting the occasional um, dedication to the discourteous reader. Um, and really, it's, it, it's along the lines of so many of these things are dedicated to the kind reader, to the courteous mm -hmm. reader, to the gentle reader, that some authors just go off and say, this is ridiculous, and I'm going to dedicate mine to the reader who doesn't care. So you start to see authors <laughs> making fun, or authors doing mock paratexts, or impersonating printers doing mock paratexts. Well, authors um, just doing mock paratexts as authors. They are author to the readers um, as well. They just make fun of this up one side and down the other. Right. Um, there are also, I mean, there's ones, they try to use these paratexts to say who they wish was reading their item. Um, I dedicate this to the gentlewoman for I would have no other read it. Um, that type of thing. But I think Ben Johnson sort of does it very, very well when he's, he dedicates his to um, unreaders at some point. Unreaders. <laughs> yeah, the the people who will not read. Ah. <laughs> and what what might we infer from from when a printer says to my gentle women readers that the book is aimed at them, or that the printer wishes it was aimed at them, or is this? The printer is aiming at them quite often. Whether he hits them, that's a different question. Yeah. Okay. Um, and part of it is also ensnaring the book into identity politics. Right, having the book become an instrument of identity creation. What they're really saying is, I'm trying to associate my book with this quality, yeah. and if I can convince you of that, then by choosing to read my book, you will be participating in the creation of that quality. Yes, okay. So my, this, this whole project grew out of a study um, in which I was looking at how printers were discussing nationhood. And a lot of the discussions of early modern nationhood um, Benedict Anderson, Jürgen Habermas, there's an assumption that the printing press enabled the creation of this group identity, that we are able to have these imagined communities because the printing press has created a space mm -hmm. for, which, for us to have them in. Well, if the nation has a history in that way, if the, nation, if the, if the concept of the group identity of the nation can be as a historical legacy and, and historical creation, so does printing in its role for that. For us to understand printing as a space in which the nation can be formed, we're also saying that it's not just participation in the printing process that's creating this idea of the nation. We're saying that it's the idea that participating can factor into your identity, that by reading this book you are um, taking on to yourself some of the qualities of yes. that identity. Yes. So you get this phenomenon where the printer is literally trying to construct that. Um, I was induced to print this for the good of my country, is doing two things. It's one, saying that if you read this, you are furthering the idea of country. It's also saying that printing has that ability, that printing is something that 
can further the building of an identity that is country. Right, right, okay. So you, you end up having this sort of uh, mutually generative phenomenon where a, a type of personal identity or group association is being built while also saying, well, if you, want, if you see yourself as part of that group, buy my book. Sure. But um, could, could we say a bit about the relationship then between the, the text themselves and, and the paratext? Could, could mm-hmm. the, uh, to the read letter, really look the same for any type of text? Or, or um, do, do we find that there oh, no. needs to be a connection between what you're able to say and, and what you have? There's definitely generic differences. So mm. um, religious texts are far more likely to have a paratext that talks about the personal religious conviction of the publisher. You don't tend to get personal identity statements from the publisher in the front of, say, a gardening text. (laughs) Right? So you're going to have differences there. What you might have in the front of a gardening text is an epistle from the printer that says, this is how you use this book. So scientific works, informational works, uh, lots of mathematical treatises will have instructions at the beginning that say, um, this is how you read this book which we still do. If you, if you look into a math textbook or a science textbook, you'll have a small section that has, says, when a word is bolded, it is the first time that word is being introduced. Yes. So we still have legacies of these kinds of epistles. Um, they just become even more differentiated these days, and they don't often address the reader to the reader. Could we say a little bit more about the, um, the author epistles versus the um, printer epistles, or, or when, when this particular paratext turns out to be Um, author-authored rather than print-authored? We don't know. No one has done um, a big enough survey to get solid trends on when we start to see switches from Mm. uh, printer to the readers to author to the readers. There's a sense that there's sort of a shift from mostly printer to the readers to mostly author to the readers as the rise in the importance of authorship occurs over the 16th and 17th centuries. So by the end of the 17th century, the role of the author is much more significant in the prestige of a printed book. You start to have that idea that the author will be the one who prefaces. I have actually a pretty good example of the printer to the reader, um, which is included simply because the printer does not have an author to the reader. (laughs) Thomas Creed printed Josiah Harrison's edition of a play by Francis Beaumont, Cupid's Revenge. And it's unclear whether it's Creed or Harrison, but one of them says, um, but not having any such epistle from the author, in regard I am not acquainted with him, I have made bold myself, without his consent, to dedicate this play. Right, right. Whereas a hundred years earlier, a printer wouldn't have um, made that apology, would have just felt that they can do their... To the reader without drawing attention to it or, or we can't draw a direct timeline for this yet uh, and partially it's just because we don't have enough data about who's saying these when they're saying um the classic line on this is from the 1960s uh franklin b williams jr who wrote uh, an index of dedications and epistles called the printer to the reader epistle a blank check so you can write it could be anybody we don't know if it's the printer. We don't know if it's the mm. author. Um, I'm interested in that, that there's some sort of social cachet in saying that these statements are coming from the printer, the 
the person who is producing the book. Um, whether they're actually being written by him or by the author is an interesting problem. Why is it beneficial for the author to hide behind the printer? Um, and that's where I, I think I w was beginning to head with my large survey um, in that I wanted not I wanted to sort of catalog when and how often these epistles were saying that they were coming from a printer versus a translator versus an author um, and what types of things they were claiming when they were doing so. Um, in part because the only other good survey at all, um, Williams's index, which was completed in the 60s, is useless for this purpose because what he did was he attempted to figure out who the actual author was and classified them under his... Um, what he had figured out, rather than what they said. Right. So uh, if you're interested in the rhetoric of these kinds of epistles, um, his treatment is actually quite useless. Yes. Where we look for, for, um, for satire, for, for when the epistles start to become um, ironically or, or satirically used? I think that some really great um, discovery could happen if we were able to apply uh, sentiment analysis to these kinds of texts, which is becoming increasingly possible. Um, now that the Ebo TCP has released all these transcriptions, um, one of the things that they would do, not entirely consistently, not as consistently as we would like, but to the reader epistles are tagged separately in Ebo. Mm. So if you're using um, one of the Ebo interfaces, you can limit a search to just to the reader epistles and under the advanced screen. And so you can look for negative words. If you, if you were able to download the entire set, which you can do through um, the Oxford interface, you can then run sentiment analysis on just this type of uh, paratext. It won't get all of them, mm. because it won't, um, if it's not labeled as a to the reader, this, this uh, segment is not going to be uh, differentiated yes. in the encoding, but it'll get a, a, a wide range of possible uh, epistles. Right, right. And eventually we could run sentiment analysis and say, ah, um, negative words start cropping up in 1630. I'm making this up. But you, it's a possible avenue for but, future research. At, at which point, or, or, or that's one of the, the cues when, when this stops being just kind of pure advertisement for people browsing in the shop and becomes part of the sort of text itself, part, part, part of the, the joke of the book, that this isn't something that's really trying to sell you something, but... Oh, but it's still trying to sell you something, <laughs> okay, right? It? It's still, but it's participating in that common uh, cultural dialogue. This is expected, and clearly, okay. these these okay. epistles are expected, or we wouldn't have that statement from um, on Beaumont's Cupid's Revenge that says, you know, by I should have had an epistle from mm. the author, and since I don't, I'm just going to give you this thing. If it's so expected, you start to get people who want to tweak it. Yes. Okay. And who want to play with it. When, when something becomes that expected, you start to have the possibility for irony, for satire. Mm -hmm. um, well, are there any other particular ones that you'd like to, uh, like to show or to, or to read? Any other favourites from, from the analysis you've been doing? I'm finding quite a few of them. Um, my, new, my current project is the Digital Anthology of Early Modern English Drama, and I'm, I'm finding increasing numbers of them in drama that I was not really expecting. Um, when I had done my original research, I had looked, hopefully, through all the corridors of Shakespeare and found nothing, um, which was very disappointing. Mm. But 
turns out I was looking at the wrong author. Uh, Haywood seems to have liked to write these quite a lot. Um, and Ben Jonson has his own little quirks. So it's, it's idiosyncratic. Um, I would hope that if I were able to flesh out this survey completely, that I would see patterns based on printer. But I suspect that the author is going to have an outsized influence from what we would suspect that these are mostly printer to the reader epistles. Yes. Some authors are more likely to try and chat directly with their readers. Yes. It's quite nice being able to do that with, with, with a play, to have a, a direct author channel when you're publishing your, your play. What sort of things do you find in the play epistles? Playwrights tend to say that um, they're very miffed if their play is not uh, presented as they wrote it and like to occasionally uh, display it to readers as as it was written but never performed. Right, excellent, okay. Those meddling actors get in the way occasionally. Do we ever find that authors intervene having seen the proofs and complain about the actual book that they're writing the to the letter to? Yeah, that to, was, to the letter that's to. the fascinating thing about Gascoigne's book, is that there's, there's complaints about um, the printer in the book and you think the printer has to be in on it because someone has to set it right it's not like yeah, the yeah, author yeah. can directly address the reader without so it's that been and the author's looked at the proofs and then the author's written another thing going god this is terrible or, or occasionally you've seen this for a previous edition where the, the author came back and said you butchered my text and then the printer prints the second edition with that in it and you're saying <laughs> there's some sort of, of cultural thing going on here because Otherwise, you, you don't see the motivation. Brilliant. No, of course, yes. So, so there must be some... Sort. Some back and forth going yeah, on. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. What, what, where do we find these now? What, what happened to this? Do we still have these? Or, or absolutely. We have different variations on them. Um, you'll find in some uh, fine press books a statement from the printer about the typeface that is yes, used yes. and printed on this kind of paper. And that's a direct sort of relationship right. to the old-fashioned colophon, um, talking about the physical mechanics of, of bringing this to press on a specific day. Um, but we also see, particularly in academic books, um, prefaces from the author to the reader about the use of the book or about um, how the book should be received. And they very much are still in the same vein directly addressing readership and attempting to moderate for the reader how they should approach a new text. Right. How the book should be received. What, what, um, I'm trying to think of any contemporary examples of um, how the book should be received. Actually, the, the, the example that springs to mind initially is not necessarily a academic mm. version, but uh, Alice in Wonderland tells the story of its own creation in, in a verse... Yes. Um, yes. Okay. Yeah. Preface. Alice in Wonderland is a book that, that's really concerned with its own um, creation. creation, isn't it? And, and its publication date has to be the fourth of July, like three years later, and so on. Gosh, I, I forgot mm. that that was actually in the text itself. There's clearly an author discussion of the the, the yes. reason for creating the text. Yes. So it, I, I would classify that as as similar, but it's not in epistle form. No. Okay. I think that's what we where we really sort of lose the connection a little bit. Is is when the epistle form starts to fall out of use. Mm, okay. And it does so after I stop caring. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you ever so much for that. I think that's been, that's been really useful, really fascinating, gives a, a, a kind of clear idea of what these are, um, the different forms they take, and, and the different form that, forms they take across different genres. Um, Marvellous. Thank you, mate. Thank you.